Chapter Nine of the Life Everlasting by Marie Corelli. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lisa Statler. Doubtful Destiny. His voice was calm and conventional, yet I thought I detected a thrill of sadness in it, which touched me to a kind of inexplicable remorse, and I turned to him quickly, hardly conscious of the words I uttered. "'Must the glory fade?' I said, almost pleadingly. "'Why should it not remain with us?' He did not reply at once. A shadow of something like sternness clouded his brows, and I began to be afraid, yet afraid of what? Not of him, but of myself, lest I should unwittingly lose all I had gained. But then the question presented itself, what had I gained? Could I explain it, even to myself? There was nothing in any way tangible of which to say, I possess this, or I have secured that. For, reducing all circumstances to a prosaic level, all that I knew was that I had met in my present companion, a man who had a singular, almost compelling attractiveness, and with whose personality I seemed to be familiar. Also, that under some power which he might possibly have exerted, I had, in an unexpected place, and at an unexpected time, seen certain visions or impressions, which might or might not be the working of my own brain under a temporary magnetic influence. I was fully aware that such things could happen, and yet, I was not by any means sure that they had so happened in this case. And... While I was thus hurriedly trying to think out the problem, he replied to my question. That depends on ourselves, he said. On you, perhaps, more than any other. I looked up at him wonderingly. On me? I echoed. He smiled a little. Why, yes, a woman always decides. I turned my eyes again toward the sky. Long lines of delicate pale blue and green were now intermingled with the amber light of the afterglow, and the whole scene was one of indescribable grandeur and beauty. "'I wish I could understand,' I murmured. "'Let me help you,' he said gently. "'Possibly I can make things clearer for you. You are just now under the spell of your own psychic impressions and memories. You think you have seen strange episodes.' These are nothing but pictures stored far away back in the cells of your spiritual brain, which, through the medium of your present material brain, project on your vision not only presentments and reflections of past scenes and events, but which also reproduce the very words and sounds attending those scenes and events. That is all. Lac Corisk has shown you nothing but itself in varying effects of light and cloud. There is no mystery here, but the everlasting mystery of nature, in which you and I play our several parts. What you have seen or heard I do not know, for each individual experience is, and always must be, different. All that I am fully conscious of is, that our having met, and our being here together today is, as it were, the mending of a broken chain. But it rests with you and even with me, to break it once more if we choose. I was silent, not because I could not, but because I dared not speak. 
all my life seemed suddenly to hang on the point of a hair's breadth of possibility. I think, he continued in the same quiet voice, that just now we may let things take their ordinary course. You and I... Here he paused, and impelled by some secret emotion, I lifted my eyes to his. Instinctively, and with a rush of feeling, we stretched out our hands to each other. He clasped mine in his own, and stooping his head, kissed them tenderly. You and I, he went on, have met before, in many a phase of life, and on many a plane of thought, and I believe we know and realize this. Let us be satisfied so far, and if destiny has anything of happiness or wisdom in store for us, let us try to assist its fulfillment, and not stand in the way. I found my voice suddenly. But if others stand in the way, I said. He smiled. Surely it will be our own fault if we allow them to assume such a position, he answered. I left my hands in his another moment. The fact that he held them gave me a sense of peace and security. Sometimes, on a long walk through field and forest, I said softly, one may miss the nearest road home, and one is glad to be told which path to follow. Yes, he interrupted me, one is glad to be told. His eyes were bent upon me with an enigmatical expression, half commanding, half appealing. Then will you tell me? I began. All that I can, he said, drawing me a little closer towards him. All that I may, and you, you must tell me. I, what can I tell you? And I smiled. I know nothing. You know one thing which is all things, he answered, but for that I must still wait. He let go my hands and turned away, shading his eyes from the glare of gold, which now spread far and wide over the heavens, turning the sullen waters of Loch Corisk to a tawny orange against the black purple of the surrounding hills. I see our men, he then said in his ordinary tone. They're looking for us. We must be going. My heart beat quickly. A longing to speak what I hardly dared to think was strong upon me, but some inward restraint gripped me as with iron, and my spirit beat itself like a caged bird against its prison bars in vain. I left my rocky throne and heather canopy with slow reluctance, and he saw this. You are sorry to come away, he said kindly and with a smile. I can quite understand it. It is a beautiful scene. I stood quite still, looking at him. A host of recollections began to crowd upon me, threatening havoc to my self-control. Is it not something more than beautiful? I asked, and my voice trembled in spite of myself. To you as well as to me? He met my earnest gaze with a sudden deeper light in his own eyes. Dear, to me it is the beginning of a new life, he said but whether it is the same to you, I cannot say. I have not the right to think so far. Come. A choking sense of tears was in my throat as I moved on by his side. Why could I not speak frankly and tell him that I knew as well as he did that now there was no life anywhere for me where he was not? But had it come to this? Yes, truly, it had come to this. Then was it a real love that I felt? or merely a blind obedience to some hypnotic influence. 
the doubt suggested itself like a whisper from some evil spirit and i strove not to listen presently he took my hand in his as before and guided me carefully over the slippery boulders and stones wet with the overflowing of the mountain torrent and the underlying morass which warned us of its vicinity by the quantity of bog myrtle growing in profusion everywhere almost in silence we reached the shore where the launch was in waiting for us and in silence we sat together in the stern as the boat cut its swift way through little waves like molten gold and opal sparkling with the iridescent reflections of the sun's afterglow i see mr harland's yacht has returned to her moorings he said after a while addressing his men when did she come back immediately after you left sir was the reply i looked and saw the two yachts the dream and the diana anchored in the widest part of loch scavig the one with the disfiguring funnels that make even the most magnificent steam-yacht unsightly as compared with a sailing-vessel the other a perfect picture of lightness and grace resting like a bird with folded wings on the glittering surface of the water my mind was disturbed and bewildered i felt that i had journeyed through immense distances of space and cycles of time during that brief excursion to loch Korisk and as the launch rushed onward and we lost sight of the entrance to what for me had been a veritable valley of vision it seemed that i had lived through centuries rather than hours one thing however remained positive and real in my experience and this was the personality of santoris with each moment that passed i knew it better the flash of his blue eyes his sudden fleeting smile the turn of his head the very gesture of his hand all these were as familiar to me as the reflection of my own face in a mirror and now there was no wonderment mingled with the deepening recognition i found it quite natural that i should know him well indeed it was to me evident that i had known him always what troubled me however was a subtle fear that crept insidiously through my veins like a shuddering cold a terror lest something to which i could give no name should separate us or cause us to misunderstand each other for the psychic lines of attraction between two human beings are finer than the finest gossamer and can be easily broken and scattered even though they may or must be brought together again after long lapses of time but so many opportunities had already been wasted i thought through some recklessness or folly either on his part or mine which of us was to blame i looked at him half in fear half in appeal as he sat in the boat with his head turned a little aside from me he seemed grave and preoccupied a sudden thrill of emotion stirred my heart tears sprang to my eyes so thickly that for a moment i could scarcely see the waves that glittered and danced on all sides like millions of diamonds a change had swept over my life a change so great that i was hardly able to bear it it was too swift too overpowering to be calmly considered and i was glad when we came alongside the dream and i saw mr harland on deck waiting for us at the top of the companion ladder well he called to me was it a good sunset glorious i answered him did you see nothing of it 
No, I slept soundly, and only woke up when Braille came over to explain that Catherine had taken it into her head to have a short cruise, that he had humoured her accordingly, and that they had just come back to Anchorage. By this time I was standing beside him, and Santoris joined us. So your doctor came to look after you, he said with a smile. I thought he would not trust you out of his sight too long. What do you mean by that? asked Harland. Then his face lightened, and he laughed. Well, I must own, you have been a better physician than he for the moment. It is months since I have been so free from pain. I'm very glad, Santoris answered. And now, would you and your friend like to take the launch back to your own yacht, or will you stay and dine with me? Mr. Harland thought a moment. I'm afraid we must go, he said at last, with obvious reluctance. Captain Derrick went back with Braille. You see, Catherine is not strong, and she has not been quite herself, and we must not leave her alone. Tomorrow, if you are willing, I should like to try a race with our two yachts in an open sea. Electricity against steam. What do you say? With pleasure. And Santoris looked amused. But, as I am sure to be the winner, you must give me the privilege of entertaining you all to dinner afterwards. Is that settled? Certainly, you are hospitality itself, Santoris. And Mr. Harland shook him warmly by the hand. What time shall we start the race? Suppose we say noon? Agreed. We then prepared to go. I turned to Santoris, and in a quiet voice thanked him for his kindness in escorting me to Loch Corisk, and for the pleasant afternoon we had passed. The conventional words of common courtesy seemed to myself quite absurd. However, they had to be uttered, and he accepted them with the usual conventional acknowledgment. When I was just about to descend the companion ladder, he asked me to wait a moment, and going down to the saloon, brought me the bunch of Madonna lilies I had found in that special cabin, which, as he had said, was destined for a princess. You will take these, I hope, he said simply. I raised my eyes to his as I received the white blossoms from his hand. There was something indefinable and fleeting in his expression, and for a moment it seemed as if we had suddenly become strangers. A sense of loss and pain affected me, such as happens when someone to whom we are deeply attached assumes a cold and distant air, for which we can render no explanation. He turned from me as quickly as I from him, and I descended the companion ladder, followed by Mr. Harland. In a few seconds we had put several boat lengths between ourselves and the dream, and a rush of foolish tears to my eyes blurred the figure of Santoris, as he lifted his cap to us in courteous adieu. I thought Mr. Harland glanced at me a little inquisitively, but he said nothing, and we were soon on board the Diana, where Catherine, stretched out in a deck-chair, watched our arrival with but languid interest. Dr. Braille was beside her, and looked up as we drew near with a supercilious smile. "'So the electric man has not quite made away with you,' he said carelessly. "'Miss Harland and I had our doubts as to whether we should ever see you again.' Mr. Harland's fuzzy eyebrows drew together in a marked frown of displeasure. "'Indeed?' he ejaculated dryly. "'Well, you need have no fears on that score.' The electric man, as you call Mr. Santoris, is an excellent host, and has no sinister designs on his friends. 
Are you quite sure of that? And Braille, with an elaborate show of courtesy, set chairs for his patron and for me near Catherine. Derek tells me that the electric appliances on board his yacht are to him of a terrifying character, and that he would not risk passing so much as one night on such a vessel. Mr. Harland laughed. I must talk to Derek, he said. Then, approaching his daughter, he asked her kindly if she was better. She replied in the affirmative, but with some little pettishness. My nerves are all unstrung, she said. I think that friend of yours is one of those persons who draw all vitality out of everybody else. There are such people, you know, father. People who, when they are getting old and feeble, go about taking stores of fresh life out of others. He looked amused. You are full of fancies, Catherine, he said, and no logical reasoning will ever argue you out of them. Santoris is all right. For one thing, he gave me great relief from pain today. "'Ah, how was that?' And Braille looked up sharply with sudden interest. "'I don't know how,' replied Harland. "'A drop or two of harmless-looking fluid worked wonders for me, "'and in a few moments I felt almost well. "'He tells me my illness is not incurable.' A curious expression, difficult to define, flitted over Braille's face. "'You had better take care,' he said curtly. "'Invalids should never try experiments.' I'm surprised that a man in your condition should take any drug from the hand of a stranger. Most dangerous, interpolated Catherine, feebly. How could you, father? Well, Santoris isn't quite a stranger, said Mr. Harland. After all, I knew him at college. You think you knew him, put in Braille. He may not be the same man. He is the same man, answered Mr. Harland, rather testily. There are no two of his kind in the world. Braille lifted his eyebrows with a mildly affected air of surprise. I thought you had your doubts. Of course, I had and have my doubts concerning everybody and everything, said Mr. Harland. And I suppose I shall have them to the end of my days. I have sometimes doubted even your good intentions toward me. A dark flush overspread Braille's face suddenly and as suddenly paled. He laughed a little forcedly. "'I hardly think you have any reason to do so,' he said. Mr. Harland did not answer, but turning round addressed me. "'You enjoyed yourself at Loch Corisk, didn't you?' "'Indeed I did,' I replied with emphasis. "'It was a lovely scene, never to be forgotten.' "'You and Mr. Santoris would be sure to get on well together,' said Catherine, rather crossly birds of a feather, you know. I smiled. I was too much taken up with my own thoughts to pay attention to her evident ill-humour. I was aware that Dr. Braille watched me furtively, and with a suspicious air, and there was a curious feeling of constraint in the atmosphere that made me feel I had somehow displeased my hostess. But the matter seemed to me too trifling to consider, and as soon as the conversation became general, I took the opportunity to slip away and get down to my cabin, where I locked the door and gave myself up to the freedom of my own meditations. They were at first bewildered and chaotic, but gradually my mind smoothed itself out like the sea I had looked upon in my vision, and I began to arrange and connect the various incidents of my strange experience in a more or less coherent form. According to psychic consciousness, 
I knew what they all meant, but according to merely material and earthly reasoning, they were utterly incomprehensible. If I listened to the explanation offered by my inner self, it was this, that Rafael Santoris and I had known each other for ages, longer than we were permitted to remember, that the brain pictures, or rather soul pictures, presented to me were only a few selected out of thousands which equally concerned us, and which were stored up among eternal records, and that these few were only recalled to remind me of circumstances which I might erroneously think were all entirely forgotten. If, on the other hand, I preferred to accept what would be called a reasonable and practical solution of the enigma, I would say that, being imaginative and sensitive, I had been easily hypnotized by a stronger will than my own, and that for his amusement, or because he had seen in me the possibility of a test case, Santoris had tried his power upon me, and forced me to see whatever he chose to conjure up, in order to bewilder and perplex me. But if this were so, what could be his object? If I were indeed an utter stranger to him, why should he take this trouble? I found myself harassed by anxiety, and dragged between two opposing influences, one which impelled me to yield myself to the deep sense of exquisite happiness, peace, and consolation that swept over my spirit like the touch of a veritable benediction from heaven, the other which pushed me back against a hard wall of impregnable fact and bade me suspect my dawning joy as though it were a foe. That night we were a curious party at dinner. Never were five human beings more oddly brought into contact and conversation with each other. We were absolutely opposed at all points, in thought, in feeling, and in sentiment. I could not help remembering the wonderful network of shining lines I had seen in that first dream of mine, lines which were apparently mathematically designed to meet in reciprocal unity. The lines on this occasion between us five human beings were an almost visible tangle. I found my best refuge in silence, and I listened in vague wonderment to the flow of senseless small talk poured out by Dr. Braille, apparently for the amusement of Catherine, who on her part seemed suddenly possessed by a spirit of willfulness and enforced gaiety, which moved her to utter a great many foolish things, things which she evidently imagined were clever. There is nothing perhaps more embarrassing than to hear a woman of mature years giving herself away by the childish vapidness of her talk, and exhibiting not only a lack of mental poise, but also utter tactlessness. However, Catherine rattled on, and Dr. Braille rattled with her. Mr. Harland threw in occasional monosyllables, but for the most part was evidently caught in a kind of dusty spider's web of thought, and I spoke not at all unless spoken to. Presently I met Catherine's eyes fixed upon me with a sort of round, half-malicious curiosity. "'I think your day's outing has done you good,' she said. "'You look wonderfully well.' "'I am well,' I answered her. "'I have been well all the time.' "'Yes, but you haven't looked as you look to-night,' she said. "'You have quite a transformed air.' "'Transformed?' I echoed, smiling. "'In what way?' Mr. Harland turned and surveyed me critically. "'Upon my word, I think Catherine is right,' he said. "'There is something different about you. 
though I cannot explain what it is. I felt the colour rising hotly to my face, but I endeavoured to appear unconcerned. "'You look,' said Dr. Brayle, with a quick glance from his narrowly set eyes, as if you had been through a happy experience. "'Perhaps I have,' I answered quietly. "'It has certainly been a very happy day.' "'What is your opinion of Santoris?' asked Mr. Harland suddenly. "'You've spent a couple of hours alone in his company. You must have formed some idea.' I replied at once without taking thought. "'I think him quite an exceptional man,' I said. "'Good and great-hearted, and I fancy he must have gone through much difficult experience to make him what he is.' "'I entirely disagree with you,' said Dr. Brayle quickly. "'I've taken his measure, and I think it's a fairly correct one. I believe him to be a very clever and subtle charlatan.' who affects a certain profound mysticism in order to give himself undue importance. There was a sudden clash. Mr. Harland had brought his clenched fist down upon the table with a force that made the glasses ring. "'I won't have that, Braille,' he said sharply. "'I tell you, I won't have it. Santoris is no charlatan, never was. He won his honours at Oxford like a man. His conduct all the time I ever knew him was perfectly open and blameless.' He did no mean tricks, and pandered to nothing base. And if some of us fellows were frightened of him, as we were, it was because he did everything better than we could do it, and was superior to us all. That's the truth, and there's no getting over it. Nothing gives small minds a better handle for hatred than superiority, especially when that superiority is never asserted, but only felt. "'You surprise me,' murmured Braille, half apologetically. "'I thought—' "'Never mind what you thought,' said Mr. Harland, with a sudden ugly irritation of manner that sometimes disfigured him. "'Your thoughts are not of the least importance.' Dr. Brayle flushed angrily, and Catherine looked surprised and visibly indignant. "'Father, how can you be so rude?' "'Am I rude?' And Mr. Harland shrugged his shoulders indifferently. "'Well,' I may be, but I never take a man's hospitality and permit myself to listen to abuse of him afterwards. "'I assure you,' began Dr. Brayle, almost humbly. "'There, there, if I spoke hastily, I apologize. But Santoris is too straightforward a man to be suspected of any dishonesty or chicanery, and certainly no one on board this vessel shall treat his name with anything but respect.' Here he turned to me. "'Will you come on deck for a little while before bedtime, or would you rather rest?' I saw that he wished to speak to me, and willingly agreed to accompany him. Dinner being well over, we left the saloon, and were soon pacing the deck together, under the light of a brilliant moon. Instinctively we both looked towards the dream yacht. There was no illumination about her this evening, save the usual lamp hung in the rigging, and the tiny gleams of radiance through her portholes and her graceful masts and spars were like fine black pencilings seen against the bare slope of a mountain, made almost silver to the summit by the singularly searching clearness of the moonbeams. My host paused in his walk beside me to light a cigar. "'I'm sure you are convinced that Santoris is honest,' he said. "'Are you not?' "'In what way should I doubt him?' I replied evasively. "'I scarcely know him.' Hardly had I said this, when a sudden self-reproach stung me. 
how dare i say that i scarcely knew one who had been known to me for ages i leaned against the deck rail looking up at the violet sky my heart beating quickly my companion was still busy lighting his cigar but when this was done to his satisfaction he resumed true you scarcely know him but you are quick to form opinions and your instincts are often though perhaps not always correct at any rate you have no distrust of him you like him yes i answered slowly i i like him very much and the violet sky with its round white moon seemed to swing in a circle about me as i spoke knowing that the true answer of my heart was love not liking that love was the magnet drawing me irresistibly despite my own endeavour to something i could neither understand nor imagine i'm glad of that said mr harland it would have worried me a little if you had taken a prejudice or felt any antipathy towards him i can see that braille hates him and has imbued catherine with something of his own dislike i was silent he is of course an extraordinary man went on mr harland and he is bound to offend many and to please few he is not likely to escape the usual fate of unusual characters but i think indeed i may say i am sure his integrity is beyond question he has curious opinions about love and marriage almost as curious as the fixed ideas he holds concerning life and death something cold seemed to send a shiver through my blood was it some stray fragment of memory from the past that stirred me to a sense of pain i forced myself to speak what are those opinions i asked and looking up in the moonlight to my companion's face i saw that it wore a puzzled expression hardly conventional i suppose conventional convention and santoris are farther apart than the poles no he doesn't fit into any accepted social code at all he looks upon marriage itself as a tacit acknowledgment of inconstancy in love and declares that if the passion existed in its truest form between man and woman any sort of formal or legal tie would be needless as love if it be love does not and cannot change but it is no use discussing such a matter with him the love that he believes in can only exist if then once in a thousand years men and women marry for physical attraction convenience necessity or respectability and the legal bond is necessary both for their sakes and the worldly welfare of the children born to them but love which is physical and transcendental together love that is to last through an imagined eternity of progress and fruition this is a mere dream a chimera and he feasts his brain upon it as though it were a nourishing fact however one must have patience with him he is not like the rest of us no i murmured and then stood silently beside him watching the moonbeams ripple on the waters in wavy links of brightness when you married i said at last did you not marry for love he puffed at his cigar thoughtfully well i hardly know he replied after a long pause looking back upon everything i rather doubt it i married as most men marry on impulse i saw a pretty face and it seemed advisable that i should marry but i cannot say i was moved by any great or absorbing passion for the woman i chose 
she was charming and amiable in our courting days as a wife she became peevish and querulous apt to sulk too and she devoted herself almost entirely to the most commonplace routine of life however i had nothing to justly complain of we lived five years together before her child catherine was born and then she died i cannot say that either her life or her death left any deep mark upon me not if i am honest i don't think i understand love certainly not the love which raphael santoris looks upon as the secret key of the universe instinctively my eyes turned toward the dream at anchor she looked like a phantom vessel in the moonlight again the faint shiver of cold ran through my veins like a sense of spiritual terror if i should lose now what i had lost before this was my chief thought my hidden shuddering fear did the whole responsibility rest with me i wondered mr harland laid his hand kindly on my arm you look like a wan spirit in the moonbeams he said so pale and wistful you are tired and i am selfish in keeping you up here to talk to me go down to your cabin i can see you are full of mystical dreams and i am afraid santoris has rather helped you to indulge in them he is of the same nature as you are inclined to believe that this life as we live it is only one phase of many that are past and of many yet to come i wish i could accept that faith i wish you could i said you surely would be happier should i he gave a quick sigh i have my doubts if i could be young and strong and live through many lives always possessed of that same youth and strength then there would be something in it but to be old and ailing no the faust legend is an eternal truth life is only worth living as long as we enjoy it your friend santoris enjoys it i said ah there you touch me he does enjoy it and why because he is young though nearly as old in years as i am he is actually young that's the mystery of him santoris is positively young young in heart young in thought ambition feeling and sentiment and yet he broke off for a moment then resumed i don't know how he has managed it but he told me long ago that it was a man's own fault if he allowed himself to grow old i laughed at him then but he has certainly carried his theories into fact he used to declare that it was either yourself or your friends that made you old you will find he said as you go on in years that your family relations or your professing dear friends are those that will chiefly insist on your inviting and accepting the burden of age they will remind you that twenty years ago you did so and so or that they have known you over thirty years or they will tell you that considering your age you look well or a thousand and one things of that kind as if it were a fault or even a crime to be alive for a certain span of time whereas if you simply shook off such unnecessary attentions and went your own way taking freely of the constant output of life and energy supplied to you by nature you would outwit all these croakers of feebleness and decay and renew your vital forces to the end but to do this you must have a constant aim in life and a ruling passion as i told you i laughed at him and at what i called his folly but now well now it's a case of let those laugh who win and you think he has won i asked most assuredly i cannot deny it but the secret of his victory is beyond me 
I should think it is beyond most people, I replied, for if we could all keep ourselves young and strong, we would take every means in our power to attain such happiness. Would we, though? And his brows knitted perplexedly. If we knew, would we take the necessary trouble? We will hardly obey a physician's orders for our own good, even when we are really ill. Would we, in health, follow any code of life in order to keep well? I laughed. Perhaps not, I said. I expect it will always be the same thing. Many are called, but few are chosen. Good night. I held out my hand. He took it in his own and kept it a moment. It's curious we should have met Santoris so soon after my telling you about him, he said. It's one of those coincidences which one cannot explain. You are very like him in some of your ideas. You two ought to be very good friends. Ought we? And I smiled. Perhaps we shall be. Again, good night. Good night. And I left him to his meditations and went down to my cabin, only stopping for a moment to say good night to Catherine and Dr. Braille, who were playing bridge with Mr. Swinton and Captain Derrick in the saloon. Once in my room, I was thankful to be alone. Every extraneous thing seemed an intrusion or an impertinence. The thoughts that filled my brain were all absorbing, and went so far beyond the immediate radius of time and space that I could hardly follow their flight. I smiled as I imagined what ordinary people would think of the experience through which I had passed and was passing. Foolish fancies, neurotic folly, and other epithets of the kind would be heaped upon me if they knew. They, the excellent folk whose sole objects in life are so ephemeral as to be the things of the hour, the day, or the month merely, and who, if they ever pause to consider eternal possibilities at all, do so reluctantly, perhaps in church on Sundays, comfortably dismissing them for the more solid prospect of dinner. And of love? What view of the divine passion do they take as a rule? Let the millions of mistaken marriages answer. Let the savage lusts and treacheries and cruelties of merely brutish and unspiritualized humanity bear witness. And how few shall be found who have even the beginnings of the nature of true love, the love of soul for soul, angel for angel, God for God, the love that accepts this world and its events as one phase only of divine and immortal existence a phase of trial and proving in which the greater number fail to pass even a first examination. As for myself, I felt and knew that I had failed hopelessly and utterly in the past, and I stood now, as it were, on the edge of new circumstances, in fear, yet not without hope, and praying that whatsoever should chance to me I might not fail again. End of chapter 9